Good morning. Today is January 7th, 2024. We are reading from the big book of AA, page 90, starting with when you discover to and including paragraph 91, usually the family. Lynn Kay will be our reader, followed by a 20-minute share by Jennifer W. Lynn? Thank you. When you discover a prospect for Alcoholics Anonymous, find out all you can about him. If he does not want to stop drinking, don't waste time trying to persuade him. He may spoil a later opportunity. This advice is given for his family also. They should be patient, realizing they are dealing with a sick person. If there is any indication that he wants to stop, have a good talk with the person most interested in him, usually his wife. Get an idea of his behavior, his problems, his background, the seriousness of his condition, and his religious learnings, leanings. You need this information to put yourself in his place to see how you would like him to approach you if the tables were turned. Sometimes it is wise to wait till he goes on a binge. The family may object to this, but unless he is in a dangerous physical condition, it is better to risk it. Don't deal with him when he is very drunk, unless he is ugly and the family needs your help. Wait for the end of the spree, or at least for a lucid interval. Then let his family or a friend ask him if he wants to quit for good and if he would go to any extreme to do so. If he says yes, then his attention should be drawn to you as a person who has recovered. You should be described to him as one of a fellowship who, as part of their own recovery, try, try to help others and who will be glad to talk to him if he cares to see you. If he does not want to see you, never force yourself upon him. Neither should the family hysterically plead with him to do anything, nor should they tell him much about you. They should wait for the end of his next drinking bout. You might place this book where he can see it in the interval. Here, no specific rule can be given. The family must decide these things but urge them not to be over-anxious, for that might spoil matters. Usually, the family should not try to tell your story. When possible, avoid meeting a man through his family. Approach through a doctor or an institution is a better bet. If your man needs hospitalization, he should have it, but not forcibly unless he is violent. Let the doctor, if he will, Tell him he has something in the way of a solution. Thank you so much, Lynn. And now we will have a share from Jennifer W. Jennifer, we look forward to hearing what you have to share. Please begin. You will have 20 minutes. Great. Hi, everybody. Thanks um, for having me speak today. My name is Jennifer. I'm from Massachusetts, and I am a gratefully recovered overeater. Um, I, you know, to start out, it would really be helpful for me if I could just do the, um, 
if I could just do, I just, I'm sorry, I can't even think right now. This set aside prayer. <laughs> God help me today to set aside everything I think I know about you, everything I think I know about myself, and everything I think I know about others, and everything I think I know about my own recovery, so I may have an open mind and a new experience with all these things. Please help me see the truth. Thanks, everybody. I am an addict. Food is my addiction, sugar in particular. Um, but there were times in my life when my addiction was different. In my early 20s, I had a problem with alcohol. I had a problem spending. I had a problem with sex. And But sugar, nothing felt like sugar. Sugar was great. I could celebrate with it. No one, no one shakes their finger at you if you're eating out in public. Um, it's accepted. Um, it, it's, it's, it was my friend and it was killing me. At 25 is when my addiction really narrowed down to sugar, but my disease was always alive and well. Um, by 38, I had a partial hysterectomy, was asthmatic, depressed, and anxiety, uh, and had anxiety. So all of the things I had done to try to ease those things weren't working for me. This sounds like I'm not coming back to the reading, but I'll get there. <laughs> by the time I was 50, I was in the hospital with pneumonia and was there for four days. And during times when I was able to be more mobile. I really liked hiking in the woods. I felt close to my higher power there. But while I was there, they told me that I probably wasn't going to be doing a lot of walking outside, that I had, what was happening with me respiratorily was not really going to be resolved. And I remember feeling this intense anger in me that my disease had won. And at that point, I didn't know that I belonged in OA. I knew that I had an addictive personality and I knew food had become a problem. And I was really angry. And that day I started walking in the hospital room. I was, I had a, cont a contagious um, virus, which led to the pneumonia. So I wasn't allowed out of my room and I would stretch in there. I was so determined for them not to be right. But the truth was I was 440 pounds they were right. So I called the kitchen. I put myself on a diabetic diet while I was there. And um, that's what I did. And for the next six months, I lost 100 pounds white knuckling it. I was really, really deep in my disease. I was restless. I was irritable. I was discontent. My mental twist was no better. I just had started controlling my eating using that character defect I really am good at control. So I was weighing myself every day and weighing everything I was putting in my body and counting every step and constantly moving and anxious at night while I tried to sleep. Did I get enough steps in to take care of everything I put in my mouth? I looked better. I was no longer, uh, what do they call people like me? Super morbidly obese. I was now just morbidly obese and feeling awesome and hating it and hating myself and having to control everything and not managing even the light slightest blip in the road became too much for me. And then I started working with a woman and um, 
she said to me, wait a minute, I have a couple of notes. I'm not looking at them. That's not helpful. Um, I started working with a woman, uh, a new person at work, and she is an AA. She started talking to me about these mixed fellowship meetings for people who were um, had some problems with sugar. And I said no a couple of times, but when I did say yes and I went there, it was very familiar. I, I knew myself. I saw myself. It all resonated with me, and I didn't need anyone to say, okay, just take out the word alcohol and insert food because it doesn't really matter for me. It's if I can get this under control, but I don't really, really deal with a spiritual solution. I don't sit with steps 10, 11, and 12. I'll pick up something else. The mental twist for me is the biggest piece. So I sat there and I listened and I recognized everybody and I recognized myself. And I thought, boy, I believe here. And I felt that I, I belong here. And I felt this surge of hope that night. And that hope has been really important. Um, so I don't know about you, but listening to those pages, I definitely recognized myself. Uh, when I was needed a binge, you could not get in my way. When I needed to control a situation, do not get in my way. I knew what needed to be done. And I was the only one who could do it. I was incredibly powerful in my mind, but I was powerless. I was powerless. I was sitting happily in my disease and I was angry, controlling, unbending, unpredictable. But as an addict, I could also be really reasonable and I could be charming and manipulative. And I work with and am friends with this person who had me go to this meeting. And for that, I'm always really grateful. And anytime I need to feel that surge of hope again, I know I just need to connect to my higher power and say, help me. I can't do this or take this from me. And I can feel that again. I can feel that surge of hope. So, sorry. Going through the steps uh, in the big book with my sponsor, we did that during a summer and it was a really amazing experience talking to people, building a network, listening to podcasts, living deep in the big book and having someone guide me through that big book was really important to go through those steps, the steps that I was afraid of, the steps that essentially led me to a new freedom, to a different way of living. One of the things that came from my recovery was I was able to spend time with my family over the holidays and instead of it being tense and difficult and finding myself resorting to eating food to get through it i was able to sit and enjoy what was happening most of the the time was spent at my house so i did have control there it is again of the food mm -hmm. but i also was able to let go of control i had planned a hike for us um Christmas Eve morning and other people weren't into that. And instead of getting sullen or eating, I was just like, okay, that's not what people need for today. I'm, I'm going to need to go with it. I'm going to need to go with the flow. And I did, by the way, um, being in recovery has helped me continue to release weight, but what it's really done is help me start to connect with people in a different way and to be more authentic 
because if it was a year ago, I would have called or texted Kim this morning and told her some elaborate story of why I couldn't possibly speak today because I'm terrified right now. And I would have come up with something elaborate that she po couldn't possibly blame me for. Of course you can't make it. That's quite all right. So being here right now is part of my recovery. Being here right now is fighting my character defects. I, I'm, hop I'm hopping around. I'm really sorry about that. I want to let you know also that I've, I've signed up for a hundred mile hiking challenge for the winter because I do hike. I hike out in the woods every weekend, at least three miles over those two days and sometimes more because they, they were right about me because I didn't have recovery. But now that I have recovery, more things are possible for me. And I am slowly, slowly healing the damage that compulsive overeating has done to my body and my spirit. And each day there's something different I can do that I couldn't do before. I teach young children. So I have six and seven year olds around me every day. And at one point I had a doctor tell me that that might not be the job for me because I would be at risk of catching so many respiratory vi um, viruses. But that hasn't really happened. I've had a pretty healthy year so far. <laughs> I've had a pretty healthy year for a few years. And every day I get to go to work and I'm the teacher I want to be. I took my kids out for a hike so we could have um, the last day before the December break so we could start our day out in the woods together. I'm the teacher who does that now. I'm still morbidly obese according to all the numbers, but I can do these things now. So I don't know. Why, where am I now? I really about like 10 minutes. Oh, thanks. I really liked this quote. Wait for the end of the spree or at least for a lucid interval. When I was eating and when I was restless, irritable and discontent, there were so few lucid intervals. I, I often felt like I was either in a controlling rampage where I was getting lots of things done and controlling people in situations or trying to, or I was almost passed out from sugar where I just did wanted to dull every bit of pain that I had, you know, happy, let's celebrate with sugar, depressed, anxious, let's dull that. And I saw everything through this veil of sugar. Then another part I like here is as part of their own recovery, try to help others who will be glad to talk to him if he cares to see you. And that's really it. That's really what it comes down to. I cannot, I, I don't eat sugar, but if that's all I do, I'm only abstaining. I'm not in recovery. It's sitting in steps 10, 11, and 12 that help me really live recovery. It's knowing and reminding myself every day, this is a spiritual solution. I have to look to my higher power. And probably as a result of how I was raised, I tend to think of my higher power as God with pronouns of he, him, um, so please don't be offended if I slip into that language, but by connecting there, that's when I'm really able to live recovery. That's when I notice that I'm not bothered by issues that happen at work, things that happen with my family. Um, I don't perseverate on those things. I can deal directly with people. I can speak from my own experience and then move on. I'm not perseverating. I'm not running to other people to try to get them to listen and take my side. None of those things lead to a healthy life. None of those things are part of a spiritual solution. Um, 
Yeah, sorry. Um, the last one of the last things I want to say is um, I was re I was listening to one of the podcasts very early on, and someone named Larry spoke, and he put the twelve steps in this really succinct manner, and I have it on a little thingy, and I keep it with my big book, and I look at it most days, and I quote it to anybody who will listen to me. Step one is give up. Steps two and three are look up. Steps four through nine, clean up. I was so afraid to clean up my mess, but you know the truth was? It was harder thinking about doing it than actually doing it. For, step four was terrifying to think about, but doing it was so freeing. Steps 10 and 11, keep up. And step 12, show up, showing up for others. I was listening to the podcast from last Sunday because I couldn't be here. And um, Kim had mentioned that, you know, if you if you say to 10 people, I'll take you through the doctor's opinion, you might hear from a few of them. And that's been my experience, too. When it comes to looking for sponsees, um, I offer to take them through the doctor's opinion. And I've had some takers, not so many, not so many, but just keep offering out there so we can be open to other people uh, when they are ready. There's no convincing anyone before their time. There was no convincing me. And I know that there are times that some people in my life have said, Jennifer, imagine if you did this when you were 30. Imagine if you'd done this when you were 20. I didn't. I can't go back. I can't go back. But who I am today is someone that I like because it's someone I respect. So that is the, the message that I want to give to other people. It's the food is obviously an issue. Overeating is an issue. Restricting is an issue. But it's the mental twist and the spiritual solution where I have to live. That is where it helps me keep from being restless, irritable, and discontent. So 10 and 11 and 12 are just, they're vital for me to be in recovery if I want to be truly recovered. And helping others is how we can continue to do that. It's a hard part for me. I sometimes feel a little bit like an imposter. I have a long way to go. I'm a hundred pounder in a lot of ways. I've lost a hundred pounds. I have another hundred to go. So I'm in, in a lot of ways, I'm a hundred pounder. But if we don't give this out to each other, if we're not spreading that word, then we're isolating. And that's another thing our disease likes. If I start isolating and reading my book and going to meetings, but I don't talk to anyone else, it's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time before I stop going to meetings and I stop reading and I stop writing and I stop doing the things that matter and I start to eat sugar. I remember telling my sponsor at one point during that I hadn't been going to meetings or listening to podcasts, but I was still abstinent. And she said to me, Abstinence is the last thing to go. It's the last thing you lose. I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose that. So if you're looking for a sponsor, hit me up. Thanks, everybody, for letting me share. Enjoy your Sunday. Bye-bye.